The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 34, beginning at verse 11, we'll be reading through verse 18 this morning. The word of the Lord. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and the ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, we'll be reading through verse 26 this morning. The word of our God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Please keep your place here in Matthew chapter 5, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Jesus is not a tame lion. You all know that. Nevertheless, from the time of Moses down to this present day, the people of God have sought to tame the lion of the tribe of Judah by domesticating his word. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a hard saying. So in the Western church, we've sought to repackage these demands that Jesus places on our lives in an effort to make them more manageable. We attempt to domesticate God's word by imagining that all Jesus really wants is for us to be nice and respectable. Or perhaps now that we're in the 21st century, Nice, respectable, and tolerant. Because tolerance, at least in theory, has become one of the great virtues of our day. And one of the worst things that can be said about you in our day 
is that you are somehow intolerant. But Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. I really appreciate the fact that you are such a nice group of people. I like the fact that you are nice. And it does turn out that a type of tolerance is a sort of Christian virtue. If that tolerance flows from the reality that we know that other people are all created in the image of God. So no matter what they say about us, even if they slander us, we treat them with great dignity because they are image bearers of the living God. So yes, a type of tolerance is an appropriate thing for us to have. Nevertheless, the modern idea of tolerance is at the same time both far too broad and far too shallow to be a cardinal Christian virtue. There are, in fact, many things that the Lord calls us to stand against with unwavering intolerance. Uh, We see this truth taught all throughout the Bible. You, You have to work at it to miss it. I mean, David was utterly intolerant of Goliath mocking the living God. Elijah, when he stood on Mount Carmel, was utterly intolerant of Baal worship. Jesus Christ, as he came into the temple courts and drove out the money changers with a whip, was entirely intolerant of them turning the house of God into an emporium. And perhaps most urgently for us, Jesus tells the church at Laodicea that he is so utterly intolerant of lukewarm churchgoers that unless they repent, he is ready to spew them out of his mouth. Correspondingly, merely tolerating other people falls far short of what the Lord calls each of us to do. See, biblical tolerance, and there is such a thing as biblical tolerance, but biblical tolerance is a side effect of loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Tolerance is not the goal of the law. The goal of the law is love from a pure heart. It turns out that attempting to tame the Lord by domesticating his word is not a modern phenomenon. The people of God were doing this 2,000 years ago as well. Yet Jesus won't let either them or us put him into a cage. As our Lord makes clear throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the law of God runs deeper than we think. Now Jesus has just told us that whoever teaches and practices the law of God will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's now going to show us what that looks like. In fact, he's going to do that six times. Jesus picks out six fundamental aspects of the Christian life, and he's going to address what the law has always meant, and he's going to apply it to our lives with searching intensity. Jesus begins with the commandment against murder. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at our Lord's teaching on murder under three simple yet surprisingly challenging headings. First, love means more than nonviolence. Second, love your brother. Third, love your enemies. And that's probably the simplest outline I've given you for a sermon 
in two years. It's simple. We can all get it. But Jesus doesn't call us just to get it. He calls us to do it. He calls us to put these things into practice. Jesus is calling and commanding us to recognize that love means more than nonviolence, that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we are even to love our enemies, who are in fact our neighbors, as ourselves. And as I say, it's good to get it, but Jesus is calling us more than to get it. He's calling us to put his words into practice. Our Lord begins with the truth that love means more than nonviolence. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now we need to begin with some background work about what Jesus is getting at when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I call it background, but it's in the passage. We have to figure out what he's saying because he's going to repeat this several times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really important that we understand what he's driving at. Uh, I'm taking some time on this this morning, but it'll pay big dividends for us over the coming weeks as we look at the next five times that Jesus uses the same structure. Jesus says, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And we might add, well, rightly so. I mean, not murdering is in the Ten Commandments. And if you take it that way, you can imagine that what Jesus is doing is saying, the Old Testament says, don't kill, but I'm going to elevate it. Now that I have come, the Messiah of Israel, I'm telling you that not murdering isn't enough. I'm going to redirect the law and build on it so that you also have to care about your heart. That you have to not be wrongly angry with your brothers. You have to not hold them in contempt. And if all we had was this first commandment, that would have a certain degree of plausibility about it. The Old Testament had a firm law. And now that Jesus has come, the standard is being elevated. Nevertheless, there are two problems with that. Uh, the first is, is that the Old Testament law always meant that you needed to love your neighbor from a pure heart. By its very design, the law of God was always spiritual in its nature and meant more than simply outward conformity to the worst examples of how you could sin. But secondly, Jesus is not pitting himself against Moses. Right? He's not saying, you, you know, back there with the law with Moses, Moses taught you X, but let me tell you, I've come to clean it up. There's more that you need to know. That should actually be obvious to us. After all, if we, you were here when we looked at the preceding paragraph, there Jesus kept making the point, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In fact, not one jot, not one iota of the law will pass away until it is all fulfilled. So the first thing we need to see, I'm going to try to unpack this in just two steps. 
The first thing we need to see is that biblical law does not function the way modern law does in the Western world. And uh, our problem is, is we're so used to the way law works for us, we think that's the way it's always worked. But it actually can't. So in the modern West, the way law works is, is you write out really detailed laws. You uh, put out everything that could possibly happen. You splice all your words. You carefully define everything. And you end up with massive, long legal codes. Uh, even a simple act, or a single act, it's not simple, like the Affordable Care Act runs to hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, the uh, U.S. Federal Tax Code, uh, depending on the size of the font, is somewhere between six and 7,000 pages long. Now, it should be obvious to us that that's only possible when you have the printing press. If you had to copy out such a tax code by hand, nobody would ever get a copy of it. It would be impossible. So the modern West, because of the printing press, and also increasingly because of computers, can have these incredibly detailed laws and incredibly detailed bills that spell out exactly what agencies are supposed to do. Well, ancient law didn't work like that. So ancient law worked on what we call paradigmatic law. Uh, I happen to like that term. I think it'll be helpful for you if you remember it. But the key thing to realize is that paradigmatic law says there's a pattern. And what I'm going to do is give you an example. And what you're supposed to do and what the judges will do in court is reason from this example to all the related issues. And so when God commands thou shalt not kill, well, it does mean thou shalt not murder, right? That you can't wrongly take someone's life. But you ought to reason from that, well, I can't punch them in the face either. I can't break their legs, right? Lesser included offenses, as you might say. And in fact, the way biblical law works is you have to be able to turn that around. It means both sides. So it doesn't just mean the negative, don't murder, don't punch someone in the face, don't break their legs. But you are obligated by God to work for your neighbor's safety and well-being. That's how biblical law works. By the way, that's how law worked in the ancient world, and uh, Near Eastern world in general. It's not just in the Bible, and it's the nature of not having a printing press. You have to remember that when you get to the law of God. Uh, many of you have heard me say this before, but let me just remind the young people here. If you ever find yourself with the law of God saying, well, technically, it wasn't a lie, or technically, it wasn't stealing, you know you're in a lot of trouble. You're looking for loopholes. That's not the way the law works. God is revealing his character to us. We ought to embrace everything that he has in his law. So paradigmatic law is the alternative to modern law, which is written out in very often in very long volumes. The second thing we need to see, quite clearly is that Jesus is not setting himself up over against Moses. He is setting himself up over against the oral tradition of the Pharisees, which had come to obscure the pure word of God. Let me say that again. This is important. You can see this all throughout the life of Christ. He's not setting himself up over against the Old Testament, like the Old Testament is a discarded first draft. He's setting himself up over the oral tradition of interpreting the law but it had come to obscure the pure word of God. As I say, this should be obvious to us when we look back at the previous paragraph. There, Jesus makes clear that he did not come to abolish the law. He came to teach it and to do it. Furthermore, if you pay attention, 
If you read through the Gospels, you're going to notice that when Jesus refers to the Old Testament, he commonly refers to it by saying, it is written. Or perhaps even better, it stands written. That's not what he says here. Here he says, you have heard it said. He's specifically drawing our attention to the fact that he's talking about the oral law that had built up through the centuries in ancient Judaism. Now, a few scholars get hung up on how a contemporary tradition that's contemporary to Jesus in his own day could be introduced with the claim, you have heard that it was said of those of old. But of course, the tradition had built up over time. And the very reason why a tradition has authority is because people believe that our elders and their elders and people for a long time, those wise men and women of old, all held this. And all we're doing is sticking with the traditions of our fathers. So I think it will help you a great deal if you remember that Jesus is focusing on oral tradition. In fact, it's going to be necessary for you at several points. As we'll see later in Christ's ministry, many examples of this. Uh, For example, at one time, the Pharisees and the scribes will come to Jesus and say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. That is ceremonial washing. It wasn't they were being unclean. See, they're saying, look, for generations, Jewish people, pious Jewish people have been doing this, and your disciples don't. We're going to judge them by the tradition. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? They come to him and say, why don't your disciples do this? Jesus says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, that's what's at stake with this oral tradition. Mere human insights, sometimes they are valid, mere human insights and sometimes mere human mistakes are being put in the place of the word of God and imposed upon the people of God. That's what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. Religious tradition had become so powerful that it obscured the pure teaching of the word of God that the application of the law had frequently become nothing more than the commandments of men. And by the way, this is not about ancient history. (laughs) We need to be careful about this. Not their traditions, but our traditions. We can do the very same thing. At the very least, it means we have to keep coming back to the word of God and saying, does what I'm teaching, what I'm believing, what I'm putting into practice comport with what God has said? That's the very minimum. And let me also urge you to be very careful, as I and your elders are very careful, to not bind the consciences of anyone to anything that's not in the word of God. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And therefore, we dare not bind anyone's conscience to something that God has not clearly said. Well, that's a lot of background. I grant that. But if we grasp these these twin truths about the paradigmatic nature of biblical law and the way Jewish oral tradition obscured the pure word of God, that will pay rich dividends in our lives. It will also pay rich dividends for us as we study the rest of the Sermon on the Mount together. 
Let's move forward and apply these truths to verses 21 and 22. Please look there again with me. Verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The oral tradition had attempted to domesticate the word of God. So the Jewish people could look at the commandment against murder and check the box. Yeah, I did that. I've never killed anyone. Check. I am a law keeper. And Jesus is saying, not so fast. The law runs a lot deeper than you think. Jesus is saying, are you ever angry with your brother unjustly? Do you insult one another? Do you hold people in contempt using language like fool and moron? If so, you are not a law keeper. You are a law breaker. You are pitting yourself against the very law of God that you claim to follow. Why are we tempted to do that? You notice I didn't say, are you tempted to do that? You are tempted to do that. Why are you tempted to look down on some other people to put them down? Well, there are two main reasons why we do that. One is we wrongly imagine that by putting other people down, we're going to lift ourselves up. We're going to have a sense of significance. After all, we're better than those people. Um, I think kind of an interesting aside is that really important people almost never do that. I think of uh, Queen Elizabeth, who, of course, is a remarkable example in so many ways. But here's Queen Elizabeth, the long and reigning monarch in British history, and she had a wonderful ability to make whoever she was talking with feel important and valued in their own right. Now, part of that, I think, is her own Christian testimony. Uh, she's carrying it out in the way she lived. But I suspect that part of it is also... If you're the longest reigning British monarch in history, you don't have anything to prove. You don't have to try to lift yourself up by putting other people down. How does that apply to us? I mean, no offense, but probably none of us are going to become as famous or as important in the world as Queen Elizabeth was. And it's very unlikely that any of you are going to marry into the British royal family. Um, Those of you who most would like to do that are already married. You can't do that. So how does this apply to us? Well, my brothers and sisters, you are not members of the British royal family, but you are members of a much more important royal family, that of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As Peter quite clearly tells us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for the Lord's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Beloved, as children of the living God, you have no need to put anyone down in order to justify or vindicate yourself. You have already been fully justified in Jesus Christ. You have been fully adopted into his family as a beloved daughter and son. And therefore, even if the other person is wrong, you can have the grace to lift them up. God will take care of exalting you. The second reason why we're tempted to put people down 
has to do with group identity. And you all know this. If you pay any attention to politics, you know American politics has become very, very tribal. It's our group against their group. So you flip on MSNBC, and they have a stream of one commentator after another coming on and saying that um, Republicans are ignorant, lying people who hate America. So you flip the channel over to Fox. And there's a different stream of people coming on and saying, you know, Democrats are ignorant, lying people who hate America. Well, if you happen to identify with one of those parties, it becomes very easy for you to start thinking of those other people in those sort of contemptuous ways, to speak down to them. If you get on social media, you're going to have friends who do that. Without even thinking about it, you can drift into talking about politicians and people that follow them in the type of terms that Jesus is condemning here. They're fools. Idiots. I mean, how could a smart person disagree with me about these things, right? But do you hear what Jesus is saying to us? Jesus is saying that if you speak like that about other human beings created in the image of God, you are in danger of judgment. Not simply judgment in this world, but the judgment of Almighty God. And sadly, these attitudes are not limited to politics. You could turn off MSNBC and Fox, but you know, these attitudes have totally crept into the church. Or maybe I should say have run into the church. It is very easy for us to draw a circle around our group in the church and say, you know, all the people inside the circle were really good. And part of how we know how good we are is we point out what's wrong with everyone else who's outside the circle. Trust me, I see this all the time with young seminary graduates. It's a very common thing. They try to show how orthodox they are by pointing out other people are wrong. But regrettably, it's not limited to seminary students. This is a problem that we all have. Even in the church, we are tempted to draw a tight circle around our own group and to treat people outside of our little silo as though they are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, as a professional theologian, I'm regularly asked by people, what do I think about other theologians and pastors? You know, what do I think about Michael Horton, uh, N.T. Wright, Doug Wilson, and so on? So let me ask you, what advice would you give me? How do I apply these words of Jesus to how I answer those questions? See, the way I normally answer those questions is I just dive right in, because I think theology all the time. You could ask my wife, she knows. I think theology all the time. And so I dive right in and I start saying, well, these are the things I appreciate about Mike Horton or N.T. Wright or so on. And these are the areas where I think there's some concerns or maybe even some things that are dangerous for the people of God. But you know what I think Jesus is telling me? He's saying before I say those things, I ought to start at least by telling myself, they're my brothers in Christ. Therefore, I am committed to loving them. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that goes without saying, right? Fair enough, but I've discovered in my own life that that which goes without saying often goes without doing. And I suspect I'm not the only one in this room with that problem. See, these words that Jesus is telling us are not meant for us to apply to other people. They are intended for us to apply to ourselves. Let us remind each other that Jesus never says they will know that you are my disciples by how carefully you critique each other's theology. 
Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. See, the commandment against murder is commanding far more than not physically harming one another. And this truth is so important that Jesus gives us two applications. Love your brother, love your enemies. First, love your brother. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer the gift. Now let's get the scene right in our minds, because I think we can miss this. Uh, This morning, I, I jumped into my warm car, I drove less than 30 minutes, and I arrived for public worship. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Most of the people Jesus is speaking to are Galileans. They would have had to walk 80 miles over the course of several days to get to the temple courts. They would have almost certainly not brought an animal. They would have purchased one that was pre-approved as it was, as a spotless animal suitable to be offered up in the temple. And then they would be standing in line. I think we always forget about the lines. Um, There's not three people or a dozen people at the temple courts. There's thousands of people who have streamed to the temple courts. And sacrificing animals is a slow and bloody business. They would have gotten in line and waited their turn. Imagine if you're there. You know, at first, you look around. I mean, the temple's just, it's magnificent. By far the most beautiful buildings in Jerusalem and one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's magnificent. So you could have enjoyed that. And you probably would have been deeply moved knowing that for reasons that are entirely apart from yourself, God had chosen to make you one of his chosen people. And here you were at the one place in the entire face of the earth where God had said his name and said, you come and worship me here and I will hear your prayers and I've given you these means of grace. Well, you would have thought that for a while. And then you would have said, can this line get moving a bit? I mean, nobody likes to stand in lines too long. And then suppose you're getting up toward the front of the line. It's almost your turn. And you remember somebody has something against you. They're angry with you. They think you've wronged them in some way. What do you do? Oh, come on, we all know what you do. You offer your sacrifice. You've been traveling for four days. You offer your sacrifice, and then you go, yeah, yeah, when I get done with this important work of worshiping Almighty God, then I'll go be reconciled to my brother. But, beloved, that is not what Jesus says. Jesus says the matter of being reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ is so important that you ought to leave your offering there. First go and be reconciled, and then come back and worship God. Wow, that's hard. Jesus is saying that reconciliation in the family of God is so important that it takes priority even over your private worship. I will add in a moment, this is actually private worship. Uh, Let me give you just a simple human analogy. I think you'll all get this, at least if you're parents. Um, This Thursday, probably almost everyone in this church is going to celebrate Thanksgiving. Now, if you're a father or a mother and one of your children is bitterly, burningly angry with another one of your children, 
you are not going to enjoy Thanksgiving meal. And the fact that your angry children nicely set the table, maybe they make the mashed potatoes really, really well, it's not going to cover up for the fact that your children whom you love are at enmity with one another. Uh, Young people, let me say, you should take this to heart. The first thing you ought to do is be reconciled to one another. And then your family can truly give thanks with peace and joy. Now, if that's true in a human family, how much more is it true in the family of God? As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, the believer cannot pretend that the horizontal relationships that he carries on with his fellows are independent of his relationship with God. That's a constant temptation in the life of the church. You know, I'm walking with God, not really getting along with my brothers that well. But you recall what John says in his first epistle. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And I remind you that Jesus is not calling us to simply affirm this is true. Jesus is calling us to put these words into practice. Now, some of you are going to ask a very practical question. You know, we come to the Lord's Supper every week. Suppose I'm getting ready to come to the Lord's Supper, and I remember that someone has something against me. What should I do? Should I leave, or should I stay and celebrate the Lord's Supper? I mean, after all, I can't get the elders to put the Lord's Supper on pause while I go do this, the way I could with offering up my sacrifice at the altar. I want to say that's not an easy question to answer, but I know that some of you will think it, so I I want to take a shot at it. My own judgment is, is you ought to, with a deep desire to be reconciled to your brother, remain and participate in the Lord's Supper. The the danger of not doing that, because after all, you can't put this on pause, like Jesus' example, uh, the people could. The danger of not doing that is you can start thinking to yourself that I have to be good enough reconciled enough in all my relationships to come to the Lord's table, when in fact the Lord is coming you to come there as a sinner in need of grace. The very grace you're going to need is you seek reconciliation. So my judgment is by all means you should come, but you ought to be totally committed that before you come back next week, you're going to have done everything that's in your power, right? as much as depends on you to achieve reconciliation with your brother or sister. This is not a multi-month process. right? Get with it. On the other hand, you might disagree with me on that, and that's just fine. It's okay. You do not have to agree with me on everything. And I want to say as your pastor, if you get up in the middle of a worship service and walk out in order to seek reconciliation with your brother or sister in Christ, that is one time that you're walking out of the worship service will not bother me in the slightest. Reconciliation with your brothers and sisters in Christ is that important to God, it ought to be that important to us as well. Now I confess that for me, this is the easier part of our Lord's application. Um, might have seemed hard, but for me this is the easy part, because when I think of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I think of you. And honestly, you're a very easy group of people to love. But Jesus says, not just your lovely brothers and sisters, but also your enemies. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. 
Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. Here's an intriguing thing. I wonder how many of you noticed this. Did you notice that in both examples Jesus gave us, it's someone else had something against us? I might have thought when he was talking about wrongly being angry at your adversaries or wrongly being angry with your brother, that one of the examples would be about us having something against the other person. And I think the reason why Jesus does this is pretty obvious once we think about it. If the problem was me wrongly having something against someone else, I could deal with that by myself, all alone. I could let go of my anger. And Jesus is giving us examples where we have to be reconciled to other people in relationship. Remember, the commandment to not murder, of course, is a relational command. Uh, Think back to the Beatitudes. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. He does not say blessed are the peaceable, but blessed are the peacemakers. And making peace of necessity always involves other people. So I think one of the things we ought to notice is, is this is a relational thing. This is not something I can go up into a mountain with a Bible and meditate on my own for a couple of days and somehow achieve. I need to do this in relationship with other people. Now, what is your very first thought when someone else attacks you verbally? Go ahead and pause for a second. Think about that. What do you do when someone, like, calls you names, attacks you, makes accusations against you on how you've fallen short? And and, and don't answer what you wish your first reaction would be. What is your actual first reaction? Now, unless you're a lot more sanctified than I am, your first reaction is going to be to defend yourself or at least to minimize the offense, right? You know, either uh, they misunderstood me, I was, I, they're wrong, or perhaps more commonly you realize there's a bit of truth in it, but I meant well, they misunderstood. If they only knew how exhausted I was this week. Isn't that your normal first reaction? Emotionally. It's normal for us to want to defend ourselves. So if another person really calls me out, I can easily start running the video in my head of all the scenarios where I end up vindicating myself. Uh, I suspect some of you have that video equipment in your heads too, you know. You kind of work through the conversations and you kind of get to the place where I was basically right, even if I was a little bit wrong. The problem is, is if two people were both doing that, running that video through their heads where they're both trying to vindicate themselves, that, that conflict is going to escalate, and it's going to escalate. It may end up in a church court. It may end up in civil courts. It's going to escalate until at one point it blows up. And Jesus is saying, get off the train now. Don't, don't wait till it arrives at the station or its final destination. You are my people. You are supposed to seek peace with one another, and you're supposed to do it now. You are my people, and you're supposed to seek peace with your enemies. As much as it depends on you, by all means, you can't compromise the truth of the gospel or God's call on your life for the sake of a false peace. But as much as it depends on you, you need to seek peace right now. 
Now, as a child of the king, we never need to dig in. We never need to lift ourselves up in order to fight for our own justification. As I've already told you, you've already been fully justified in Christ. And therefore, you can take the lowly position, as Jesus does as a servant when he washes the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. You can take the lowly position, confident that empowered by the gospel and the Holy Spirit, God will work reconciliation through you, even with those who attack you without a just cause. And after all, isn't that exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? We attack God. God reconciled himself to us at the cost of his own son. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds good in theory, but that is way too hard to do in practice. I mean, let's be realistic. Beloved, the only thing I can tell you is Jesus isn't a tame lion. He's not going to allow you to domesticate his demands to work it down to a level where you say, you know, what I really want is uh, to believe in a Jesus who accepts me just the way I am and doesn't insist that I change. God will not change his word to accommodate our lazy desires. Jesus is not a tame lion. And the word of God is not intended to give us an occasional warm thought or feeling. The Lord intends his word to be a fire in our bones as he sends out his word and sovereign power to accomplish his great purposes in this world. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You cannot domesticate the word of God, and beloved, that is good news. Because the Holy Spirit, who has used his word to cause you to be born again, is sovereignly using that same word to conform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, all of us ought to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. May that be true for each and every one of us. Amen.